So what does God want from his people? And especially for them to approach him, ultimately, what does God want? In the prophecy of Micah, you see the prophet spending quite a bit of time uh, decrying and condemning the sins of the people. They are full of idols. They are oppressing. They're more concerned about wealth. They lack contentment. They'll do whatever it takes to acquire more possessions for themselves. It has been chapter after chapter depicting a culture of prosperity that has come about through hardships and difficulties upon those who are innocent and those who are weak and downtrodden. And so Micah has been presenting condemnations and yet at the same time of condemning the the people of Israel and Judah, he has offered prophetic hope in each of his uh, prophecies. Now, uh, for tonight, if if we had two hours, uh, we could do chapter six and seven because this is the final of the three prophecies that Micah gives. We noted at the beginning that uh, for, for Micah, only three prophecies that are kicked off with the word, hear this, you people, or hear this, O Jacob. And you'll see that in chapter 6, verse 1, that the same thing happens there is a call for hear what the Lord says. But, but what God says here through Micah about what he desires, we just can't go fast over that. We need to slow down and really consider uh, these powerful words that, that God gives about here is what I'm ultimately looking for. The way God opens this, though, might be a little bit surprising to us. Listen to the first two verses where God begins by saying, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. This begins with a courtroom scene. You'll notice that God says, I have a case against my people. I'm going to contend with them. In fact, it's an indictment that I am now pressing against them. And now you would expect that the rest of this would be essentially all the charges. All right, now here's all the sins and here's my indictment as if a prosecutor were coming out and saying, now here's what you've done. But notice what God does instead. Verse three, he simply asks a question. And God says in verse three, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. So here God says, I've got this case against you. And then he stops and says, I just want to ask a simple question. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? And now listen to how God follows that up in verse four. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam Oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So God's defense is, is really interesting. Where How have I wearied you? And then what God does is he gives a list of all the good things that he's ultimately done for Israel. He begins by saying, 
Remember, I redeemed you from your slavery. You were in Egypt. You were crying out and you were oppressed. And and I was the one who rescued you. And not only did I rescue you, I gave you the leaders that you needed. I gave you Moses. I gave you Aaron. I gave you Miriam. They were the ones who were at the forefront, who led the way that you were able to look to as the ones who were part of this deliverance. And then he reminds them in verse 5, he says, Now remember what happened with Balak and Balaam. And you might say, I don't remember what happened with Balak and Balaam. And this goes back to Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 24. And what you had in that scene was as Israel was about to come into the promised land and take possession of it, that Balak, the king of Moab, has heard about uh, the power of Israel and has purchased Balaam, a prophet. And the purchase was, I want you to pronounce curses upon Israel. But you might remember that every time that Balaam opens his mouth with an attempt to curse Israel, uh, blessings only come out to the absolute frustration of Balak, who is pain for curses. And God is saying, don't you remember what happened that when these kings and these false prophets essentially tried to pronounce curses upon you, I reversed them and I made them blessings so that you would be blessed and those who would curse you would also be cursed. And then finally, he says at the end of verse five, and you know what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. And you know what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. When we looked back at that scene of about to cross into the, the promised land, you have the miraculous parting of the Jordan River. And as well as Gilgal is the encampment about which they are going to conquer Jericho, which is also by miraculous means. And so what God does is he ultimately recounts the whole Exodus scene and says, now, How have I wearied you? You were in slavery and I set you free and I gave you the leaders that you needed and everybody who tried to stop you. I conquered them. People who tried to curse you. I made them say blessings upon you and you miraculously were given victory until you were put into the land. So how have I wearied you? How am I a burden to you? Please tell me. I love the wording there in verse three. Answer me. Please just give God an answer how God has been a burden to you all this time. And as you think about what God is saying here, I wonder if we would consider the same charges against us. Because I think it is such an interesting thing for God to say, am I a burden to you? Is it really a weariness to you that you worship me and that you serve me, that you follow me and that you listen to me? Is it really a burden, especially when you think about everything that God has done and this recounting that God has given through Malachi to Israel can be said of what God has done for us as well. Their exodus mirrors our exodus. Are are we so wearied by God? Is God such a burden to us, though he has set us free from the slavery of sin and the slavery to death? Is God such a weariness to us that he is 
given us the leader that we need in Christ as well as in the apostles who carried out and breathed the very words of God so that we would be guided on our way to the promised land. Are we so wearied by God who has taken the curses of sin and the wrath that should be rightfully against us and flipping them into blessings so that we can enjoy time with him for eternity? Is God such a weariness that he has conquered our enemies in miraculous ways through the cross and the resurrection? Is God a weariness to us? And you wonder if God would lay the same indictment when we feel like, oh, well, we've got to worship or, oh, we need to, I guess, spend some time in prayer or I guess we need to do what God says. Is God really a weariness to us? And that's what leads God to then say, now, I'm just going to tell you what I want. <laughs> Let me just tell you what I'm looking for. After describing in the prior chapters the sins of the nation and all that they have done. He's going to say, let me tell you what I'm ultimately looking for. And one of the things that as God goes forward in talking about what he's looking for the people to do, think about this answer that God has given to Israel. Because the Exodus is a good thousand some years in the past, 800 years approximately in that range And notice that God's answer of how have I wearied you was not, well, think about yesterday. But I want you to think all the way back. And God does that with us. We sometimes go, oh, you know, well, it's been 2,000 years. God doesn't care. God points all the way to the, the, the past and says, look at the redemption. Look at the deliverance. Look how I've set you free. And as you hold that in your mind, even though it's been so long, God now steps to the forefront and says, now let me tell you, What I'm looking for. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord. And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings. With calves a year old. With will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams. And with ten thousands rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression. The fruit of my body. For the sins of my soul. Think about what God is saying right here. Here's God saying. Now what what do I really want from you? What am I asking you to do? With what shall I come before the Lord. And bow myself before God. So I'm going to come into his presence. What is God wanting from us? And notice these rhetorical questions that are being asked. Shall I come with him with burnt offerings? And the applied answer is no. Or with the calves of a year old? No. Should I, will God be pleased with thousands and thousands of rams? No. Uh, 10,000 of rivers of oil? No. Uh, What about the firstborn for my sins? He's not asking for that either. Uh, The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. No, I'm not asking for your children. What I want you to see God saying is, number one, I'm not asking the impossible out of you. I mean, think about the imagery. 10,000 rivers of oil. (laughs) You imagine if God said, now here's how I want you to approach me. I want thousands of offerings and 10,000 rivers of of oil and your firstborn. (laughs) 
You know, like, uh, we're all out here in the impossible land. I can't give you 10,000 rivers of oil. I can't give you these kinds of things. And I want us to see that God is saying, I'm not asking for you to do something that is outside of your ability. There is nothing that God has ever asked of his people to do that is impossible. He's never said to us, do something that is completely impossible. Here's what I want you to do if you're going to come into my presence. I want you to get in a spaceship and fly to another galaxy. Great. Well, that's not going to work out too well for me. <laughs> that's not what God does. He's not asking for the impossible. And by the same token, notice he's also in the various descriptions saying, I'm not asking for a pile of religious activity either. Because notice the answer is not, well, I'll take one burnt offering and a couple things of oil and a few rivers. of No, he's not looking for that either, that God is not impressed by that. And I think this is an important point to settle on, because sometimes in the religious world, the way that we think of God is often in this approach. That what God wants, if he's going to be happy, is to just do more religious activity. Just do more. Just do more. Somehow you're going to do enough good things to deal with all the bad things you've accomplished in your life. And sometimes we try to make it a race like that. I'll be do something to make it offset all the bad in my life. And I'll try to reverse all those things. And that's not what God wants. All the religious acts that you can perform are never going to undo that. But it's not what God is looking for. And sometimes in the religious world, well, I'll just go to church every week. Or I'll give more money to the Lord. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do these various activities. I'll have these uh, various rituals. And then God will be happy, right? And God says, no, that's not what it's going to be. And we have to be careful that we do not turn God into a pagan God. You sometimes think of God like the volcano God, that we just need to appease him before he blows up all over the island and kills everybody. That's not the God that we serve. And we should not look at him that way as if that's what's happening. If we can just do enough religious things, we'll finally, you know, calm him down for a few minutes and we'll survive another day. That's not what God wants. And God is certainly not impressed with our religious activity or any extravagant gift. Now, verse 8 he has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I want you to see that God is not asking the impossible, He's not asking for a bunch of religious activity, He's asking for us to do right. To love kindness and mercy and to live a humble life before him. This is how God wanted his people to respond. That's what verse six is opening with. Here's the question of verse six. How should I come before God? What does God desire of me? What is he looking for? What does he require? What should I bring when I approach? Should I bring all kinds of offerings? No. Should I bring a pile of religious activity? No, here's what God wants. God wants us to come to him with a humble heart that loves mercy and does what is right. That is how we approach God. That is what God is looking for. He's not looking for the flurry activity, but he wants the heart. And he wants the heart that leads us 
to love kindness and mercy that leads us to live right before God, that leads us to live a humble life. This is what he's looking for. And this should be, I hope, an important thought process for answering the question, how are the people of God supposed to live in a world of wickedness? How are the people of God supposed to live in a world that is full of sin? Or as we've talked about on Wednesday night, how are we supposed to live in a world that's full of injustice? How do we live in a broken world? What does faithfulness look like? And here is the answer. The answer is that the people of God don't act like the world. They don't look like the world. They don't live like the world. No, they come before God with a humble heart. And they love kindness and they love righteousness and they seek to do what is right. They act as the people of God that comes from the heart. And so we will show mercy. We will show kindness. We will be right. We will do what is just. We will walk in humility. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Over in Matthew chapter 23, in one of the woes, That Jesus pronounces upon the Pharisees and those scribes, the leaders in that day and time of the religious world. He says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill, cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And notice it's the same three things. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I want you to see the picture that Jesus gives because what Jesus highlights is the same as what Micah is highlighting is that you cannot miss the need to do right, to love mercy and show mercy and live faithfully before God and faithfully follow the Lord in in humility. And what I think is so interesting about the description here is he he points out, look at all the religious activity and the details that they were focused on. They were very careful to obey certain aspects of the law. I mean, please think about tithing your plants. That's what they're down to. They're that detailed. that They're making sure that whatever God has blessed them with and given them, They're tithing that even down to the the smallest thing like mint and dill. And in the process of focusing on the details, they miss the big picture. And I think this is an important observation in regards to what Micah is talking about as as what Jesus is talking about. Is because one of the big concerns that I have is I observe far too often the swinging between these two extremes. Extreme number one is what we just read that we see Micah dealing with in that day and time, as well as Jesus dealing with in his day and time. They're focused on the details of the law. They're very careful on all of the various small things that are written by God and all of those commandments and all of the rules. But in the process of being so focused on the thus says the Lord and paying attention to the details, they forgot love and mercy, kindness, faithfulness, humility, and and justice. They just forgot all those things. 
They're so focused in on, on the details that they are ignoring the huge things that are lacking in their lives. But so what happens in the focus on the details is then the pendulum gets pushed all the way over here to the other side. And here's how we approach God. We need to just love people. Do what's right. Love mercy. Be humble. And not worry about the details. The details don't matter. Just you just got to love people. And you just got to be humble. And you just need to care about mercy and justice. But, you know, let's not get stuck on the details. I want you to carefully observe something that Jesus said there in verse 23. These you ought to have done. Tithing the plants. Without neglecting the others. Mercy. Kindness. Justice. Humility. Faithfulness. I'm very disturbed that it seems like we fall into the edges. It's so easy to be. We're going to be so zeroed in on the details that we forget to even care about people. And we don't have a heart for people. And we aren't showing the love of God to people. And we aren't walking uprightly and showing the righteousness of God and the glory of God. And so then the religious people come along and they look at that and they go, well, that's wrong. What you're doing is wrong. You're missing the big E on the I chart. Why aren't you being just and faithful and right and merciful and good? And so they go over here. And they say, it doesn't really matter how you approach God. As long as you have it the right heart. As long as you care about justice and mercy. The details don't matter. And the reason this strikes me is because I feel like I have observed that with so many of my generation who've grown up in the pews. Who are so tired of hearing about the details while not seeing the love of God and mercy and justice. That then the pendulum has swung over here and they say doesn't matter how we worship doesn't matter the details we all just need to love Jesus let's all just be humble and live right and the details don't matter both extremes are wrong and it's in the middle that we stand what God wants from us is that we would approach him with love and justice and mercy and humility But that leads us to focusing on the details. Because we love the Lord so much, we care about what he says. We don't read it and go, well, that doesn't really matter. We want to know the details. I don't know a good illustration of this, though it's certainly antiquated in this day and time. But you get a love letter when you're dating You're careful about the details as you read over it. (laughs) You want to know what this person whom you like or love has written to you. I got to see that with my oldest. That was kind of cute. She was able to get a actual physical letter. I figured my younger generation would never send letters. They sent a letter. She got a letter from the boy she's interested in. 
And I just kind of watched what she was would do, and she was so careful to read every single word that was written. If we love God, we care about every single word that's written. We're not going to look at anything that God says and go, ah, that doesn't matter. Oh, what does that really? He doesn't really care. Every detail matters. In fact, I submit to you when, it, when Micah says here to walk humbly before your God, that is another word to say obedience. Because if I'm not doing what God says, I'm not walking humbly. I'm telling God, I know what's best. And I know you said this, but I don't care. I know what's what you really mean. I know what you really want. It's arrogance on our part. What we're saying to God is, I'm going to walk before you in the way that I think is right. That's not walking humbly before God. Walking humbly before God says, I will submit to whatever you say, even if I don't like it, even if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to yield to it. That is what humility before God is all about. And so often we can miss this and swing between two extremes and we need to land in the middle and see that Jesus says, I want both. I want love and justice and mercy and humility and faithfulness. And at the same time, I want that heart to cause you to care about every little thing that I said. And that's what Jesus' condemnation was of the Pharisees. You should have paid attention to the other without neglecting the former. So let's end on this. Does that all weary us? We listen to that and go, oh man, what a weariness. To pay attention to the details or focus on the big E on the I chart, whichever it is. To pay attention to faithfulness and upright living, to care about others and do what is right and show mercy and kindness. And to focus on the details that all of the commands of God matter. Has God done so little for us that we cannot be bothered to listen to his ways? Has he gone, has God done so little for us that we can't bother to be follow, be following his paths? I would just ask, does God have a case ultimately against us? And I hope that we would think about at any particular time that we might approach God, whether it be time for worship, whether it be in your own personal worship of God, your time of prayer, your time in the word of God, those various activities that you are doing with God. If you ever feel like it is a burden, it is a weariness, it's, ah, I got to do something. I would like to just come back to this text and ask, number one, is is God asking you to do the impossible? He's not. And he's not asking you to do a bunch of mindless activities. You remember in school having to do busy work? It was the worst. It was the worst. It was like you knew the teacher. They're just giving you stuff to do so that you'd stay out of their hair for the hour. Busy work's awful. Do we suppose that what God has given us is busy work? No. This whole thing about prayer is just, you know, busy work. 
Read, read the Word of God. That's busy work. <laughs> but to realize that everything that God is doing is trying to change us so that we will love Him, so that we will be the people that He's asked us to be in this text. That He wants us to be changed so that we will love Him, that we will love others, and that we will follow what He's told us to do. You think about what God says here. With all of the condemnations that He has against His people, What does he want them to do? What does the Lord require but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God? That's the heart that God wants. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, sometimes we can lose sight of what you're looking for out of us. Lord, sometimes we can lose sight of it to such a degree that we think that you are satisfied because we come to church or do certain activities, because we pray, because we read the Bible, because we're baptized, we keep the Lord's Supper. We can sometimes fall into that thinking. God, I pray that you would always awaken our hearts to remember that it's not about activities and that these things are not busy work, but your means of transforming our lives so that we'd be able to love you better, to love others better, and to walk humbly before you. And God, also forgive us for the times when we haven't cared about the details. When we have seen your commands as exhausting for the times that we have perceived you to be a weariness. Forgive us for thinking that way. And God, help us to never forget what you have done for us. You have rescued us from slavery and rescued us from sin. You have given us the leader that we need in Jesus. You have reversed our curses into blessings You have overcome our enemies through the cross. Lord, help us to never lose sight of it. Help us to always remember it. Anytime we feel like our activities are tiresome, please remind us of all that you have done for us so that we'll serve you more faithfully in the days ahead than we have in the past. Forgive us for our failures. Lord, lift us up to be more faithful servants of you who love justice, who do right, and walk humbly before you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We'll sing invitation song now. We do invite you to come to Jesus and to think of his grand offer that what he's offering you is not burdensome. He's just asking you to see what he's done and to give your heart to him, to give your life to him. And it'll certainly be worth it because he is here to transform you in such a way so that you can belong to him for eternity. And we help you in any way this evening to do that. We encourage you to come and do that now while we stand and while we sing.